Stuart Udall's Politics of Beauty. Stuart Udall was very attracted initially from, he grew up in the Arizona desert, but was spent times in the nearby mountains and was very attracted to the beauty of the land. He simply loved the land and he wanted to protect the beauty of the land. But as time went on, I think he saw beauty in larger terms, in terms of even how we relate to each other, how we communicate each other, how kind we are, um, how we take care of not only the earth, but everybody. That's John DeGraff. We talk with him about his new film, Stuart Udall, The Politics of Beauty. It takes an in-depth look at the life and work of Stuart Udall, a man who played a pivotal role in shaping America's conservation and environmental policies. Then we listen back to my interview with Les Leopold about his biography of labor leader and environmentalist, Tony Mazzocchi. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Stuart Udall was a giant of the conservation movement in America. He played an inside game on conservation, serving as the Secretary of Interior under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson from 1961 to 1969. During his time in office, he helped pass the Endangered Species Act, limits on pesticide use, and protections for water and air. He also added 4 million acres to wilderness protection, including four national parks, 50 wildlife refuges, and eight national seashores. John DeGraff's inspiring film, Stuart Udall, The Politics of Beauty, explores Udall's life and career and explains a motivating factor that drove his work, his lifelong love for the beauty of the natural world, stemming from his childhood in rural Arizona. But Udall didn't only care about the environment. DeGraff tells us that Udall saw the connection between care for nature and care for people, championing the rights of black Americans, Native Americans, and those who have been downwind victims of U.S. nuclear weapons tests. John DeGraff is perhaps best known for his books, Affluenza and What's the Economy for Anyway?, He's an advocate for a shorter work week and the adoption of the Gross National Happiness Scale instead of the Gross National Product, something Stuart Udall would have applauded. Udall once said, an increasing gross national product has become the holy grail, and most of the economists who are its keepers have no concern for the economics of beauty. John DeGraff, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you. Pleasure to be on your show. Again, it's been a while. And this time it's about a film, not about a book. Stuart Udall, The Politics of Beauty. Um, Stuart Udall, you say in this, and actually a lot of your sources say, was one of the great environmentalists of the 20th century. Yet he's really not generally known. How did you come upon his story? Stewart's probably not as well known because he did it through government. He was the Secretary of the Interior. So the people who were out there, you know, pushing him to do it, although he was 
very willing to be pushed. But the Rachel Carsons and David Browers and, and people like that, they were the ones who were more in the news, whereas uh, Stuart worked behind the scenes. But I first met Stuart in 1988 when I interviewed him for a film biography of David Brower, the great environmentalist who basically built the Sierra Club. And they had uh, been both allies and opponents during that period. And the one time that they were opponents was over a plan to put dams in the Grand Canyon. And I interviewed Stuart about this. Stuart had originally supported this plan as an Arizona politician originally because he had hopes to run for the Senate and or, or governor of Arizona. And if he opposed this, he was out. He was done as an Arizona politician. But uh, of course, there was a lot of pressure and Stuart didn't. I, I don't think he ever really liked the idea, but it was kind of, you know, what do I do? So he actually took a trip down the Grand Canyon and decided after doing that, that there would be no dams in the Grand Canyon. And he stopped the dams. And and then he, when I interviewed him in 1988, he said, well, you know, the most important thing for a public official is to be open-minded. And David Brower basically showed me the light. He showed me I was wrong about the Grand Canyon. And for that, I'm in his debt. No question about it. That's the words that uh, you'd all used. And I thought at that time, that's unusual for a politician to say I was wrong. Somebody changed my mind, you know. And so he he did he did what I think we would all consider the right thing in the end. But it, it was uh, something he had to had to go through. And uh, so then in 2020, I saw a story that said that had he been still alive then, he died in 2010. Um, he would have turned 100 years old. And I thought, wow, Stuart Udall, I remember him. He was cool. He even gave me a copy of his book. And I found it, went and found it on my shelf, the nice uh, a little note written to me from him and everything like that. And so I, I thought, I wonder if anybody's done a film about him. And there wasn't really anything except a couple of very short 10, 15 minute things that didn't cover much. And so I read a little biography. And I said, wow, he's really, really interesting. And then I con contacted the first member of his family, his son, Dennis, that I could. Dennis got very interested. We got together for coffee in the Bay Area. And Dennis introduced me to all the other kids. And it, we went from there. Well, that's a great story. And uh, in fact, you got into some of the uh, topic that I wanted to ask you about. Maybe we'll touch back on that a little bit later. You call this film Stuart Udall, The Politics of Beauty. And this is really a main theme that you have running through this wonderful film. And the Navajo sources that you spoke with for the film, people who knew and worked with Stuart Udall, linked his politics to their concept of hojo or of the beauty way. So tell us, what does it mean that the main theme of his politics was beauty. Well, I think Stuart Udall was, he was very attracted initially from, he grew up in the Arizona desert, but was spent times in the nearby mountains and was very attracted to the beauty of the land. He simply loved the land and he wanted to protect the beauty of the land. But as time went on, I think, think he saw beauty in larger terms, in terms of even how we relate to each other, how we communicate each other, how kind we are, um, how we take care of not only the earth, but 
uh, everybody, you know, and, and the spe- different species and so forth. So I think that it was his sense of beauty was about bringing balance to a world that was out of balance. And in that, it fits very closely with uh, the Navajo concept of hojo which is, or the beauty way, which is about balance. It's about creating balance in life. And so the Navajo in the morning, uh, the traditional Navajo leaving their home out the door, looking east at the sun, uh, repeat prayers. And one of those prayers is, you know, let me walk in beauty and let me go into the world where I share the beauty of my words, the beauty of my actions, um, the beauty of, of everything that I do with others. And that that's, I think, a concept that fit very well with, with what Stuart Udall was all about. Mm, that's beautiful. You know, what struck me was that Stuart Udall's conservation ethic was part and parcel of a passion for social justice. You really show that in this wonderful film, uh, including racial justice, anti-war sentiment, and a rejection of the overconsumption and materialism of, of capitalism. Talk about that passion for social justice. Where did that come from for him? And it got manifested pretty early too. So, so talk about where it came from, and 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 some of the different ways he he showed that in his earlier life. Absolutely, and it actually, ironically, came from a rather surprising source. It came from his Mormon background. He he grew up on a small ranch in the middle of nowhere as a. Uh, son of a, a Mormon rancher, uh, and the, the Mormon church, uh, uh, later Stuart, separated himself completely from the church and criticized the church for its policy on blacks and the priesthood. He was very critical of the church's policies. But one thing his father, the rancher, had taught him was that in the past, way back, we moved out to the West because we were people who were persecuted by other by other people. And we have a duty to support and stand up for other people, whoever they are, who are are persecuted and discriminated against. And uh, his father was interesting enough that he he took correspondence courses as a rancher in the law and never took a, a law class and ended up being the chief justice of the Arizona Supreme Court, where in 1948, he issued the decision that first gave Native Americans the right to vote in that state. It was that late, 1948. But he'd always talked to Stewart about this. And so Stewart and his uh, brother, Mo, who later became a longtime member of Commerce, Congress, they were um, great advocates of civil rights. They joined the NAACP in Tucson when they were students at the University of Arizona. They were both basketball stars and led the University of Arizona to its first national invitational tournament. Uh, But they also found that the campus of the University of, of Arizona was segregated. It was Jim Crow. They had black students, but they had their own, uh, uh, places in the library they couldn't eat in the cafeteria and so forth and and the the Udall brothers just said this is not acceptable and they invited black friends to the cafeteria with them and and started a protest and the university gave in and this carried on when Stewart was in government he actually discovered when he became secretary of the interior in 1961 that the national park service didn't have any black rangers in American parks, except for in the Virgin Islands, which is essentially a, a black part of the United States. But but there were no black rangers. And he said, this has to change. The Park Service has to look like America. 
And so he sent out recruiters to traditionally black colleges and universities to recruit young African-Americans to be rangers and, and populate the national park with them. And one of them was Robert Stanton, who's in my film, who later became the first African-American director of the National Park Service. Uh, and you'd all also found that the Washington then Redskins, the team was called, the football team in, in Washington, D.C., and, and Stewart liked sports. So he would go to these games, and but he discovered that the Washington Redskins were the only team in the National Football League that would not hire black players. And Udall said, well, wait a minute here. Don't we lease our stadium, the National Stadium? It's owned by the Department of the Interior. Don't we lease that to the Washington team? And his attorney said, yes. And he said, well, then I'm going to call the owner of that team and say, if you want to lease the stadium in the fall, um, you need to hire black athletes. And if you don't do that, then you need to find another place to play. And so he forced the integration of the Washington then Redskins uh, at that time. So Stewart's commitment was long-term also uh, to justice, especially for Native Americans and self-determination for Native Americans, which he was in charge of uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs as head of the Department of the Interior. So he, he changed some of the rules there as well. I don't mean to go too long on this, but uh, it was a lifelong commitment. It's so interesting that you talk about the Washington Redskins, and of course that name has been changed now. Yes. The consciousness of, of racism when it comes to names was still not quite on his radar screen, but I'm, I'm, I assume that he would have been completely in favor of the name change. Absolutely. I'm certain that he, he would have. But no, it was not on his. And in fact, his high school team that he played for was called the Redskins, uh, you know, and they had Native American students. I mean, they did in rural, rural Arizona. But yes, I, I just think that particular consciousness was not there for Stewart, although it certainly would have come. Pe people do change and, and they learn over time. And, and the great thing about Stewart was that he was always learning. If he, if he got something wrong, he tried to get it right. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with John DeGraff about his film about the great environmentalist Stuart Udall. It's called Stuart Udall, The Politics of Beauty. Now let's talk about his work as the head of interior. He was appointed by JFK, and you know he did some very important work under JFK, but he did even more work after John Kennedy was assassinated and LBJ, Linda Mays Johnson, took over. Um, talk about that. He was actually afraid that he was going to be fired by Johnson, but it didn't turn out that way. Well, the reason for that was that he had been a big supporter of John F. Kennedy. He had he had gotten Arizona's uh, congressional delegation. He was a U.S. congressman when, when John F. Kennedy was elected. He had gotten the delegation to support JFK over uh, LBJ in the race for the presidency in 1960. And LBJ used to joke with him all the time and say, Udall, you're a Kennedy man, and things like that. But LBJ was, he, he was a, complex character so he called Stuart in you know and he said well Stuart you still want to work for me even though you're a Kennedy man basically and Stuart said yes I think you'll be a good president I would like to and and LBJ said well get back to work then and he just 
kept them going. But what what Udall found was two things. Number one, that Johnson actually had a great love of nature because he had grown up in a, on a ranch in, in rural Texas. And, and even more so, his wife, Lady Bird Johnson, was incredibly sympathetic to environmental ideas. And Stuart was told that, that, uh, you know, if you want to get to LBJ, go through Ladybird. So he took Ladybird Johnson on a tour of the West in 1964. And as they were traveling down the Snake River uh, in the Grand Tetons, uh, Stuart was persuading Ladybird. He said, you know, you should make a name for yourself as an environmentalist. You don't just want to be a, a first lady, you know, is window dressing for the president. You can make a name for yourself and what you, and you can be the, the conservation first lady and one thing you could do is start a national beautification campaign and lady bird later wrote in her mem memoirs that stewart was an excellent salesman and that he convinced her that this is what she should do and so she started that but it was and and se sexism being what it was at the time a lot of people said oh isn't that sweet lady bird is planting flowers and doing things and having national beautification but she was actually a real fighter for many other things where the environment was concerned and so with her support uh, Stewart was also able to get the support of Lyndon Johnson to pass a lot of important environmental legislation. So let's talk about some of that legislation. Um, I mean, we're talking the Endangered Species Act, the Wilderness Act, limits on pesticide use, clean air and water protection, 4 million acres added to protected lands, including four national parks, 50 wildlife refuges, eight national seashores. This is just, and that's just part of the, the roster of accomplishments. It wasn't just due to LBJ, but it was also due, you say, in this film, so interesting, that it was due to bipartisanship. And in fact, in some cases, these this environmental legislation, which of course had to be passed by Congress, got more support from some Republicans and Democrats. So talk about that whole way in which this incredible legacy got passed. Well, that's right. And Stewart was very good at working in a bipartisan fashion with people. He had he didn't agree with these people, but even, for instance, Barry Goldwater, who was on the complete opposite side of the political fence from Stewart, they were good friends. They continued to be good friends uh, throughout throughout their life and uh but they they disagreed now in congress there were two leaders one was a democratic leader in the uh in the house um interior committee whose name was wayne aspinall now wayne was a guy from western colorado and a, a district of shale oil and a, he really wanted to develop everything he was pretty anti-environmentalist and ironically on the other side the republican leader in that committee john sailor from Pennsylvania was very pro-environment. He was pro-Wilderness Act. He sponsored the Wild and Scenic Rivers Bill. He wanted to save everything, as people said. So here you had the opposite of what we might have today. And these two clashed a lot, but they did respect each other and they did come to an agreement. And Wayne Aspinall eventually came around on all the things that he resisted at first, but he did come around. He was persuaded by Udall uh, and by Sailor to support the Wilderness Act and support uh, the Wild and Scenic Rivers Bill and these national parks and all of that. Of course, he 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 demanded a few compromises and changes, but uh, Udall could not have gotten this stuff through without, without both 
Democratic and Republican support. Um, you know, a number of key senators were certainly Democrats, Gaylord Nelson, Frank Church, many others, but some some were Republicans. Thomas Kegel of California was a Republican senator, very pro-environment. And so so it was a different kind of time in which when you have the Wild and Scenic Rivers Bill, which protects now 250 rivers from any kind of development, uh, the vote in the Senate for that bill was 87 to nothing. There was completely unanimous. There were some people who didn't vote. Um, but um, and in the House, the vote was uh, 265 to seven or 285 to seven. So, you know, this was huge support for these things uh, at that time. And they got through. And then later, interestingly enough, many of the uh, much of the, uh, the key legislation that Udall initially proposed, uh, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Strong uh, Endangered Species Act, those kind of things were actually signed into law after Udall was out of office by Richard Nixon. But it was Udall who proposed those who'd gotten them uh, mostly through Congress. And then what it took to get those bills finally through and to get even Nixon's support for them was the great public pressure that came out of Earth Day in 1970, the 20 million Americans who, who filled the streets saying, we need we need action. And Nixon responded to that. And while I have no love for Richard Nixon, he did do the right thing where the environment was concerned. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I should point out that uh, my old mentor, Tony Mizaki, was you know, the labor movement played a huge part in this. He was the legislative director for the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union. Yes. He helped to build this huge uh, and, and made a huge environmental workplace health coalition um, that helped to pass the OSHA Act and EPA. And I think this is a really important point because you spoke earlier about, you know, one of the decisions that Udall kind of regretted, which was the dilemma that he faced on the Grand Canyon Dam and the fact that he had supported the Glen Canyon Dam and the interstate highway system that, you know, both went through. Um, these were mistakes that he went on to regret. But when it came to the Grand Canyon Dam, which did not get built, that was really because of the pressure from his old friend, David Brower and the Sierra Club. So again, it was grassroots pressure it, it, this is such an interesting study to see how grassroots pressure changed Udall's mind. First of all, kudos to him that he was open to change. And then he was able to leverage that because of his inside work as part of the government. Yes, and I think that's what we need. We do need people on both the inside and the out. And that that is what made those things possible. And they have to, they can be quite oppositional to each other, but they have to find some way to work together. One of the things that David Brower said, his son, David Brower's son, Ken, told me this, was that um, he heard from Harold Gilliam, who was his friend, who was an uh, environmental writer for the San Francisco Chronicle and had had worked for Udall. He said he came to to David once and he said, you know, Stuart is kind of <laughs> feels really bad, he said, because he told me that he, you and he are allies on so many things and he feels like he supports you. And he says he never hears from you except when you send him a telegram or a letter telling him how bad he is and how he's doing, how he's doing the wrong thing. And, and Brower and Ken said that 
his father said to him, you know, <laughs> I thought about that and I realized he's absolutely right. And I need to, when when he's wrong, I need to criticize him. But when he does do the right thing, I also need to, to say, hey, thank you. Because we, you know, po political people are like anybody else. They, they want to know that people think they're doing the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. Very good point. Um, if you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with John DeGraff about his film about the great environmentalist Stuart Udall. It's called Stuart Udall, The Politics of Beauty. Now, after he left his position as Secretary of, of Interior, he became... And that was, I guess, uh, under Nixon, you know, he, he, uh, he, he was no longer part of the administration. He became an environmental lawyer. Talk about how he defended Navajo uranium uh, miners and their families against, uh, you know, the, the terrible toll that the uranium mines took. Also defended people who had been what they called downwinders, people who had witnessed the nuclear testing in the Nevada desert. Talk about his work there. Yeah, absolutely. And this was probably about 10 years after uh, Stewart left office in Interior. He worked in D.C. for a while as an environmental lawyer and other things. But then he moved back to Arizona in 1979 and took up this new cause. He learned about two groups of people. Navajo and other Native American uranium miners who had, were getting clusters of cancer because of the impact of uranium, of radiation on their bodies. And secondly, these downwinders who were the people, they didn't always, they didn't necessarily see the test, but they lived in areas downwind, usually to the east, south, and east, but even north of the where the these atmospheric tests took place in the Nevada desert. And so they were sprinkled with radiation uh, time after time from these tests, and they too got cancer. And Udall thought that this was just outlandish, that someone had to, had to win compensation for these. And so he actually spent 10 years of his life pro bono working on these uh, these cases with these and going out and spending huge amounts of time on the Navajo Nation and with these downwinders and signing the, them up. And he would take this to court, these cases, and he would win every time in the lower courts and he would lose every time in the higher courts who would say, well, we're sorry, but this is government security and it's the law and it's an injustice, but there's nothing we can do. And Udall felt terrible about this. I mean, it was the hardest time of his life because he felt like these people trusted me. They trusted me as a lawyer, somebody who would advocate for them. And I failed. I haven't been able to, to succeed for them. And 10 years have passed and they're still not getting anything. So then he decided that the only way to do this was to go to the Congress, where he went with his brother, Mo, who was a congressman at the time. And they introduced legislation, well, Mo introduced legislation and other members of Congress that uh, would provide compensation for the uranium miners and the downwinders. And that's still happening. I and mean, there's still increases in that legislation today. But, you know, that was part of what Stewart did. Stewart made a little money after the, the legislation. But if you figure it all out, it would have been way less than minimum wage for for the time that, that he... Uh, he put in. And, and that was just an example of his commitment that this was an injustice. This was uh, 
a thing, terrible thing that was being done. And the Navajo had particularly suffered because they were not only many of the uranium miners, but they also lived on the land where it was that received the nuclear radiation, a lot of nuclear radiation. So Navajos died who never worked in the in the uranium mines. And I think when you talk to I I talked quite a bit with Phil Harrison, who's the head of the Navajo Uranium Miners Association today in Shiprock, New Mexico. And he said, you know, I mean, Stuart was a champion for us. He wants to show the film all over the Navajo Nation because the younger people don't realize what it took to do this and to win this. And that, you know, that we had a champion in Stuart Udall. Um, now, he also hated consumerism. He hated materialism. He rejected them. Uh, he challenged the notion of the gross national product as a, a gross domestic product, as as progress. That's stuff that's very close to your heart. You've done a lot of work on alternatives to GDP. Um, talk about his work that way, and also your own how it how it dovetails with your own philosophy. Well, absolutely. I think Stuart, uh, not only uh, G GDP, but Stuart was the first political figure. Not there were certainly scientists who who understood this and talked talked about it before Stuart, but Stuart was the first political figure who came out in 1966 and said, we absolutely have to do something about global warming, about climate change, and it's because it's going to really going to get us. He was writing and talking about this before virtually any other political figure. But he also said that, you know, we had the wrong goals that our society's goal, instead of well-being for people and a, a good environment and all that was this making a money, this thing called the gross uh, national product. And uh, one of the things Stuart wrote was he said, you know, the, the gross national product, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, growing gross national product has become the holy grail, is the terms he put it. And those economists who are its champions have no understanding of the eco economics of beauty. Uh, and beauty by then he was he meant that in that much wider sense of justice and balance but but the land land as well uh and he spoke about this and wrote about this early on uh Bobby Kennedy was the first political figure that most people think of as making a speech about the gross national product which he did at the University of Kansas when he was running for president in 1968 but he and Stewart were very close friends they lived only blocks apart in McLean, Virginia. Their kids were good friends. They talked all the time. And I have a feeling that, that the language that Bobby Kennedy used in that speech came from Stewart. Uh, it's exactly the kind of language that he used. He also persuaded uh, LBJ even early on in, in 65 uh, when LBJ gave his Great Society speech, 1964, actually, LBJ made the Great Society speech at the University of Michigan. Um, Stewart then got language into that in which uh, LBJ criticized the whole idea of of uh, the gross national product and that that's not what we're we're about. We have to be about the quality of life, not the quantity of goods. And uh, so so uh, Stewart just felt that our our values were wrong, and that was what was destroying our env environment, and it was not making us happier or healthier or any of those things. And uh, and he was to this. Very early on, he was he was talking about these things. By 1972, when I first got involved in this, you had the uh, the book Limits to Growth, which was a huge 
best-selling book basically saying, you know, we can't grow on like this. We're going to destroy the planet. And GDP is, uh, the, the search for GDP is, is very destructive. Ultimately, we have to have a different kind of measure. That's 50 years ago. But for those 50 years, I've been involved in one way or another in writing, talking, making films about this very issue that uh, GDP is not the measure of well-being. And in fact, it may be just the opposite. It actually may be a measure of the inefficiency of our society to meet real needs of people at low cost, uh, cheaply, the, the basic needs of health and all of these kind of things. Example. If um, if you get sick, very sick, you get cancer, you get all these kind of things, it requires expensive medical treatments, and that looks good. That goes up. The GDP goes up anytime you do that kind of thing. If you're healthy and never go to the doctor, you don't add one iota to uh, the GDP. You know, you have a traffic accident and the cars all have to be repaired or get new ones. That adds to the GDP. If you um, travel extravagantly you know uh, um sure that adds to gdp if you go out for a walk in the woods because it's good for your health and so forth not a bit so we're not measuring things properly and stewart was certainly one of the first to understand that well it is just a wonderful wonderful film it, stuart udall the politics of beauty john DeGraff, thank you so much for talking with us here about it now also where can can people go online to see it, or is it streaming any place? Not yet. We're, we're, we hope that that will be the case probably by February we'll be getting it out. It's it's really quite new, so we've been doing some festivals and other things and, and arranging for broader distribution. But um, I'll keep you informed. And, uh, you know, we are in a, quite a number of film festivals, so there are other other ways that people might uh, get to see where I'm not going to be doing a lot of screenings on college campuses and other places this spring. John DeGraff. Go to writersvoice.net to see the trailer for Stuart Udall, The Politics of Beauty. Next up, the man who hated work but loved labor. Stay tuned after the break. <laughs> land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. As I went a-walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway, Saw below me that golden valley This land was made for you and me I roamed and rambled and I followed my footsteps To the sparkling sands of her diamond desert All around me voice was sounding this land was made for you and me the great woody guthrie this land is your land welcome back to writer's voice i'm francesca riannon 
During our first segment today, I mentioned the great labor leader and environmentalist Tony Mizaki. Back in 2007, I spoke with someone who, like myself, worked with Mizaki, the author Les Leopold. Leopold talked with us about his wonderful biography of Tony Mizaki called The Man Who Hated Work and Loved Labor. Let's listen to an extended excerpt from that episode. Tony Mizaki was probably the greatest American you've never heard of. From his earliest years in the 1950s as a union organizer in the Helena Rubinstein factory, Mizaki acutely felt the contradiction between capitalism and nature, nature as in the natural environment and the natural need of all people for meaningful work. A longtime leader of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, or OCAW, he created the early coalition between the two environmental movements, the one that deals with hazards in the workplace and the one that deals with hazards outside of it. As legislative director of the OCAW, he used his position as a fulcrum to lever the Occupational Safety and Health Act and the Clean Air Act into law. But he was more. Always a visionary, Tony founded the Labor Party to bring political power back to working people. And he was working closely with Kerr-McGee worker Karen Silkwood when she died. In fact, many people think she was murdered for her work with Tony Mazaki and the OCAW. A movie was made of her story starring Meryl Streep. Drawing on the student movement of the 1960s and 70s, Tony Mazaki created a cadre of dedicated health and safety activists and labor activists of whom both I and my guest today were part. Tony tapped me right out of graduate school in economics to do a research project on worker health and safety programs. That project led to long-term federal funding to support community and labor workplace health coalitions, known as Kosh Groups. I worked for years on the Kosh movement. But I also did a stint in another Tony Mazaki-inspired organization, the Labor Center, headed by my guest this hour, Les Leopold. He's written a fascinating and gripping biography of his friend Tony Mazaki. It's called The Man Who Hated Work and Loved Labor. Well, Les Leopold, welcome to Writer's Voice. Now, your book, The Man Who Hated Work and Loved Labor, why this title? Well, Tony uh, had a healthy disrespect for work. In 1948, after he came out of the, out of the uh, war, he worked for about six months at the Ford Motor Company over in uh, New Jersey. And he worked on an assembly line, and it was so hard and so horrific that his respect for working people and what they, <laughs> what they had to go through went up dramatically, but he realized that traditional work, production work, work in hierarchical situations was not a fantastic thing. Later on, as he was a uh, union official, he got involved in occupational safety and health, and he realized not only was the work drudgery, but it was incredibly dangerous, and many, many people were dying before their time. And he just thought that the left in particular romanticized work. And uh, his famous line was, you know, work is crap. That's why I became a union bureaucrat. <laughs> Yet he had this incredible passion for the labor movement and for working people, and that's why the title was put together. Now, I've already told our listeners that I knew and I worked with Tony Mazaki, And throughout the years, the decades, that I frankly thought, he was one of the greatest Americans. Most people never heard of him. But that really never bothered him. 
could you talk about, you know, what what he was, what he saw his role as, and why also, finally, have so few people known about him? That's a very, very uh, interesting question, and I've been pondering it for quite a while now. I think he was a pure organizer. He saw himself, he grew up in an era where being a CIO organizer, CIO organizer, was a high calling. If you were like a UAW organizer or a steelworkers organizer, that was like a high calling. And tell us what the CIO was. Uh, Congress and Industrial Organization that split off from the, uh, uh, excuse me, Committee for Industrial Organization that split off from the AFL-CIO, uh, AFL, excuse me, in 1937, I believe it was, and, it, and it, it led to this massive organizing of industrial workers. And the unions that grew up then, like the United Automobile Workers, uh, you know, to be involved in this upsurge of labor in, 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 the, in the 30s and 40s, it, it was really like being a, a top executive today for many, many people. And being an organizer was like a calling. And in Tony's mind, it was supposed to be done in a very selfless way. It wasn't that you, you didn't lead, but you didn't, as he put it, blow your own horn. I have one incredible story that epitomizes this. He blew open the lid on the asbestos scene, uh, starting with this burial of Tyler, Texas asbestos plant, where at least a thousand workers were severely poisoned, and I'm sure almost all of them died before their time due to the asbestos exposure. Paul Brodeur from the New Yorker wrote a you know award-winning book that traced uh, basically was a story of Tony Mazaki and the health and safety movement, and it was published in. Uh, uh, 1973, 74, and I found this ad that was placed in the New York Times, and it was a full-page, blank page of the New Yorker, and it had one incredible quote in the middle, and it was this passionate Tony Mizaki quote about health, occupational safety and health and how it was murder in the workplace, and it was in huge, bold letters, and then at the bottom of the page it said, from a series by Paul Brodeur, Annals in the Workplace, et cetera, in the New Yorker. Well, I looked at this thing, I said, this is fantastic. And I remember Tony handed this to me when I first came to work with him as an intern in 1970, uh, summer of 74. And I looked at it and looked at it, and I realized Tony's name was not on the ad. They lifted his quote and didn't use his name. And you know what? I cannot find any person that he ever complained to about this. Because he thought it was so fantastic that this series was out there and the whole world was going to know about the occupational health and safety movement, that he didn't feel even the remote bit uh, slighted. So to me, that was like the epitome of the pure organizer. And I think that's one of the reasons he wasn't as well known. Unlike many other labor officials or stars, he was not out to promote himself. He was out to promote a movement. It was just an amazing trait. I've never seen another labor person or any other person that had an ego that strong that he didn't need to stroke it all the time. Yeah, and it was an ego that was really fully in the service of not just one movement, but really of the marriage of two movements, that is the labor and the environmental movement. Uh, Actually, several movements. He thought he was going to have, he, he was hoping to bring together the peace movement, the environmental movement, the labor movement, and the women's movement. <laughs> he hoped they would all come together at some point uh in the in the 70s and 80s to be a strong anti-corporate uh, popular movement. We'll say more about that. What What is the connection between those four movements and his larger vision? Well, from where he sat, he saw a, a rising corporate power in America that was just detrimental to 
sort of the most fundamental values that we hold. And it was going to be detrimental to health. He saw a connection between rising productivity and the cancer epidemic. He was certain that, in, uh, that exposures at the workplace was dramatically increasing the amount of uh, cancer in society, and certainly amongst working people, but also amongst those who lived around facilities, and that many of them were uh, lower-income uh, people. He saw that this was uh, a tragedy in the making, and that the only way to do this was to basically tame corporate power, which you could not do. No one movement alone could do it. He saw the rise of the environmental movement, the labor movement, occupational safety and health, women, uh, civil rights movement, peace movement, as all challenging corporate prerogatives. And at some point, he hoped they, they would share a common analysis and actually bring serious reforms into place. He was convinced that this was possible. Later on in life, he realized it was going to take a lot longer, but he was hoping that uh, he could redirect the energy of the 60s into the, that kind of movement for the, for the 70s. And he, some people would say he came damn close. You know, he was an incredibly ebullient personality, a very, a really large-sized personality. And as I, was, as I was reading your book, memories of Tony came flooding back to me, most notably his voice. And I've, I'd like to play a little clip for you of an interview that he gave to uh, Terry Gross on Fresh Air, just a very brief uh, clip it shows the richness of his accent, but he also uh, says something that I'd like you to comment on. So hold on for a second, and I'll cue that up. We want to become a movement again. Uh, the only gains that uh, people have made in this nation, working people, uh, have been through movements, civil rights movement, the labor movement, uh, the environmental movement. Legislation has only been a reaction to the existence of these movements. What this effort is all about is the recreation of a new movement and, and the, re, the rejuvenation of a culture that once existed, a working-class culture in this country. So now he's talking there, actually he's talking about something that he became very involved in, the creation of a Labor Party later on. He talks there about a working-class culture Say something about what, is, what does he mean by that, and how did his life express that? It takes us back to really his, uh, what he saw in the streets of Brooklyn and what he saw when he was in the war. He enlisted, lied about his age, got into the armed forces when he was 16, and he ended up in the Battle of Bulge, and uh, also was at uh, the liberation of Buchenwald about two weeks after it was liberated, he got to see the, the death camps, and it, it really shook him. Also, he, he saw a race war take place at uh, Camp Stewart in Georgia, you know, where black and white soldiers were fighting over segregation. I mean, he saw the ugly side of what can happen to working people, and he, he was determined it, uh, to not see that happen again. His his life was built around building a positive culture for working people, one based on, on uh, struggle, solidarity, that would be the antidote for the Mussolini uh, negative side of what, you know, work, what working people and all people are, are capable of. So uh, what he saw was a, a culture of solidarity uh, on, on the streets of Brooklyn. There were so many people in trade unions and so many families wrapped up in trade unions that, you know, you didn't cross the picket line. As he used to put it, you cross the picket line, you didn't go home. I mean, the whole neighborhood would know about it. There's just no way you could go home. And uh, he wanted to recreate that kind of sense of a movement that, that 
could empower itself and actually make life better for people, you know, in the neighborhood, in the city, in the country, uh, and that it would feed on itself in a positive direction. Because he feared if if that kind of movement were uh, was not created, the other kind of, you know, xenophobic, anti-immigrant, you know, flag-waving movements, that they would be created in the place of what he saw as a positive progressive movement. Uh, if the vacuum wouldn't be filled by something positive, and something negative sooner or later would come up because people hungered for that kind of uh, solidarity and they were going to do something about their situation. And for that kind of connection. Yep. So now bring us, he, he comes back from the war and he has to get a job, although actually he, he trained first as a, a dental technician, is that correct? Yeah. He, he learned how to make teeth uh, for two years. Uh, he actually was a serious student. Uh, went to dental school on the GI Bill of Rights. The tuition actually cost more than Harvard at the time. But it was just a holding pen until he could get himself into the uh, trade union movement. And he eventually ended up at the Helena Rubenstein uh, plant, which at the time uh, was in Long Island City, May 1st, 1950. I uh, got a job there. Within a few years, he kind of worked his way up and became a uh, uh, chief steward and then president. And he, it, was a, uh, it was some local... It was mostly a, a local of uh, uh, female workers, and he built it into this fighting machine. He got involved, and he got the local involved in the anti-nuclear testing movement, and uh, he became the first labor person involved in, in that and in the founding of the Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy. And along the way, he asked his members to collect uh, teeth, baby teeth, uh, from their children and grandchildren, which were sent to Barry Commoner, uh, which was part of this uh, effort to... Uh, see if uh, radioactivity was was uh, showing up in children's bones, in their teeth, uh, strontium-90, after a nuclear test. And Barry Commoner, of course, is the writer uh, who's written very... Barry Commoner, would you call him an environmentalist? Why, in many ways, I think he was uh, one of the founders of what we would call the environmental movement today. And there's a very interesting parallel between uh, Commoner and Mazaki. They didn't really know each other till later on in the 60s. But in the 50s, both in their, in their respective fields were trying to do something about the kind of craziness of the arms race. And both of them were kind of looking for a way to impact the mainstream without getting red-baited. And Commoner did it by setting up this uh, scientific uh, public information movement which uh, uh, Rachel Carson said helped influence her to get involved in, uh, in the writing of Silent Spring, which was that scientists should, shouldn't be making policy, but should be informing the public about the scientific facts of situations so that the public can make informed decisions. Well, of course, once the public knew about what was going on in the environment, they got aroused. And Tony saw this as a brilliant way to start building a movement. And when he got involved in occupational safety and health, he did the same thing. He started to have scientists and working people inform the public and workers about what was going on, the toxic uh, exposures that were going on in plants. And that really got people uh, worked up. So over time, the environmental commoners thing built into laid the basis for the modern environmental movement. And then Tony sort of hooked the occupational safety and health effort into that movement. And he actually never called it occupational safety and health. He called it hazards in the workplace environment because he was trying to consciously put those two movements together. 
We're talking about the great labor leader and father of the occupational safety and health movement in the United States, Tony Mazzocchi. We're talking with the author of a terrific biography of him, Les Leopold. His book, The Man Who Hated Work and Loved Labor, is out from Chelsea Green. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time left, and I'd like to talk a bit more about how he, in fact, did create this occupational safety and health movement. Uh, You mentioned before that he followed Barry Commoner's idea of bringing a whole lot of scientists together. He also met a young woman named Susan Dom, who wrote a book that had an incredible impact on many people's lives, including mine. In fact, it's what got me involved in the health and safety movement, and that is Work is Dangerous for Your Health. So tell us, how did he do this? How did he create this movement? And then how did he link it up with the environmental movement to create, finally, the OSHA Act? Well, this actually is also another incredible story. When he, when he started, he was, at the time, sort of the chief lobbyist for the oil chemical and atomic workers in Washington, D.C., and he was getting all these phone calls from workers who were complaining about what they called dust that's what they call toxic exposure there, that nobody knew it was toxic. They said, we have all this dust in the plant. And it was the beginning of the environmental movement in the Cuyahoga River, caught fire in Ohio, and, you know, was, pollution was a big word. And Tony was paying attention to what these workers were saying, and he started to see a pattern, and he started to look around. There was no law. He thought, there's got to be a law against this. There was no effective law. So he started to get involved in OSHA legislation. And it got stuck in committee, even with a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president. In 1968, they couldn't get out of committee. So Tony said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to the union, get a mandate to take uh, a roadshow, create a roadshow of very public workshops where workers come in and talk about their exposures and try to find some scientists and whatnot to talk to them about what the uh, problems are. And we're going to create this huge documentation, very public, in the press, and then we're going to bring it to Congress. So he, he set up these nine workshops around the country called Hazards in the Workplace Environment, and, he, and workers came in and testified. When you read these documents, it's unbelievable the kind of exposures people face. But what's even more unbelievable is that there were no scientists around to answer the questions. They basically said, we don't know. And it was very clear to Tony that he had to not only get the law passed, but he had to then create an occupational health and safety cadre of people who could help answer these questions with workers. What happened then is he made a deal kind of with the other lobbyists in Washington. He said, look, you guys lobby. I can't lobby. i got to take this show on the road. Maybe together we'll get OSHA passed. And sure enough, uh, he piggybacked this public road show with concern for the environment. In fact, he, he ended up being the speaker at Earth Day uh, because people saw what he was doing as part of the environmental movement. His, his argument was pollution starts inside the workplace. We produce it. The, the first Earth Day? Yeah, 1970. But uh, he then, uh, the act was passed, and he saw it directly as a result of bringing together the environmental movement and his very public hearings. He basically held hearings. He had the Today Show come in and film them. And it was very moving stuff, and it was all dumped, you know, brought him into Congress in a very public way. He saw this is the way you get things done. Because Nixon signed the bill into law that Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, didn't sign. So he said, hey, it doesn't matter who's in. What matters is the movement you build in the streets. The next movement he built, though, was he said, I, gotta, I need people who understand this stuff. This is highly technical stuff. We need docs and technicians on the side of working people. So he consciously set up internships, and he had dozens of these 
struggles going on in fa- against corporation after corporation all over the place on different chemicals. And uh, he was using the OSHA standard to get uh, new regulations passed. And he, he basically, some people credit him with founding the modern occupational medical uh, community, the discipline, actually founding a worker-oriented discipline of occupational medicine by bringing, putting all these people into play. Yeah, and then the creation of OSHA itself. And he points out in his interview with Terry Gross that this, you know, a lot of people say, well, Nixon signed the OSHA legislation. But Tony pointed out that that would have never happened had this movement not existed. Absolutely. Matter of fact, one of Nixon's, I think it was his secretary of labor, went to a steelworkers convention and said over his dead body would he ever, you know, agree to an OSHA legislation. And then, like, a year later, he was right there saying it was the greatest thing since sliced bread because there was this, they had really uh, mobilized both uh, the trade union movement and the environmental movement and focused it on this bill. And Nixon couldn't stop it, so he just, he, he said, well, okay, I'm, I'm going with it. I'm going to take credit for this thing. We'll talk a little bit more about this because we now are in a time, well, perhaps it's beginning to change, but... In the 1970s, when the environmental movement was really gaining steam, and so was the occupational safety and health movement, they worked together. There was real solidarity between them. People in the environmental movement supported strikes by by oil workers, by chemical workers uh, that were around health and safety, and then that all went bad. There actually came a time, you talk about the Tom's River case. Um, Maybe you could say something about that when, in fact, workers turned against the environmental movement. And I certainly have seen times when the environmental movement couldn't care less about workers. Well, there was always going to be a certain amount of, you know, uh, distance because uh, the experience of working people who were in the factories and environmentalists who were not in the factories. But what Tony proved was that with the right framework and with leadership from the union side, you could bridge the gap, and with leadership from the environmental side. Tony reached out to these environmental organizations and asked them to participate and frame the issue so they thought it was in their interest to participate. But it took leadership. Les Leopold talking with us in 2007 about his biography of Tony Mazaki, the man who hated work and loved labor. Go to writersvoice.net to hear the whole interview. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. 